0: and welcome to the APAP podcast. My name is Corinne Young. I am your host today and the president of the Association of Pulmonary Advanced Practice Providers. And today we have Corey Fratelli. She's a nurse practitioner from National Jewish in Denver, Colorado. We recently brought you episode one, discussing exercise testing for breathless patients who is a good candidate and who we should consider for those types of exams. But today we're going to be diving in a little deeper to those patients with unexplained dyspnea. And if you missed episode one, um, I just want to reintroduce Corey. She is with National Jewish since 2003. She started in basic science research and is now practicing as a nurse practitioner with the interstitial lung disease team, um, also with the breathing exercise clinic team. She has a unique background in both basic science and clinical research. She has informed her interest in clinical medicine and her past basic science research includes asthma airway hyperresponsiveness, cystic fibrosis and lung cancer. Her past clinical research includes COPD and interstitial lung disease as well. Presently, she is interested in how research translates into personalized medicine. Her clinical focus is mainly ILD and shortness of breath while exercising, but also she sees general patients as well. Recently, she won a travel grant to the UK to study breathing pattern disorders, which we're gonna talk about today and she'll be studying at the universities there. So let's just kind of dive right into these breathless patients that may or may not have had exercise testing and you're trying to figure out, is this dysfunctional breathing? Is it not? What exactly is that? So help us unwrap that whole package.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me again, Corinne. I'm actually really excited about this topic today. Um, We all have known about breathing pattern disorder or what? you know some people call dysfunctional breathlessness or hyperventilation or overbreathing syndrome we hear it called a bunch of things but it, and it's usually classically been this wastebasket diagnosis in the united states and um, we're i'm trying to turn those tables so that we're treating it more often but kind of to ride on the last episode you know if you have this patient with unexplained dyspnea and you did all these exercise tests and everything is normal and they have normal upper airway function. And oftentimes what you'll see on the test report is um, abnormal breathing pattern or dysfunctional breathing. Um, You don't ever really see breathing pattern disorder written. Um, So it's kind of a, a term that I've more pulled from the providers in the UK who have been treating this. But ultimately, it's a condition in which patients describe, you know, a different constellation of symptoms. And that can include dyspnea or shortness of breath, um, shortness of breath with exertion or at rest. They can have chest tightness, chest pain. They'll often say, you know, I yawn a lot when I'm sitting or I sigh breathe, which is... "Ah, and it doesn't happen continuously it can happen several times a day and sometimes they even experience like numbness and tingling in their extremities and i have to say the the research behind this and the literature around it isn't isn't perfectly ca- characterized so patients who exhibit this breathing pattern disorder will demonstrate a degree of erratic breathing whether it's at rest and or with exercise and what you'll mostly see is a hyperventilation that's present as well as mostly an upper chest type phenotype of breathing. Wow. I mean, when you said sigh breathing
0: and yawning a lot, I think we've all heard that from our patients and we're like, you know, maybe you just need to get up and move around. Maybe you're just hypoventilating, sitting the way you are, that type of thing. So um very interesting that that is a phenotype of that type of patient. Do we have an idea of what the physiology behind it is or the biochemistry behind it?
1: Yeah, we have some theories, right? Um, we can break it down into mainly three categories. Like, It could be related to biomechanics. Like how do we move? What are postures involved in that? Are we breathing through our mouths? Um, also, culture plays a huge role here. Um, we're Told as you know, young children and and maybe this hits women more to suck it in or pull your tummy in, um, and we often wear tight clothing. So all of those features can affect our biomechanics of breathing. Um, biochemistry definitely plays a role here. You know, we think about um, the acid base balance of carbon dioxide to oxygen. What is their pH level? You no know, allergies play. A role here too, because we if we have high levels of histamine, that can increase breathing rate. Um, If you have a high sugar or high processed diet, there's some theory that this weighs in. Uh, Apparently, if you have too much caffeine, you know, if you have increased heart rate, it increases the breath rate. You know, alcohol would do the opposite; it would would decrease uh, your respiratory rate. In, In some cases, pain medication falls into that category um hormones like progesterone it's it's interesting because as i as i go on i think wow there's a lot of things that influence this right lack of exercise or deconditioning heat humidity altitude plays a huge role and we see that a lot in colorado and then the last component is is psychological concerns like stress anxiety panic disorder pain and so when we think about all the the things that can cause breathing pattern disorder it's quite a long list and Oftentimes we're confused because the patient comes to us with chest pain. You're like, why are you sitting in a pulmonary clinic? You have chest pain. Maybe you should go to cardiology. But they've already been the cardiology. They they've ruled out any anything serious. Yet they're sitting in your clinic. And I think oftentimes we overlook, you know, the the breathing pattern disorder. But to say that it is almost a diagnosis of exclusion, like we've excluded all these other things, which we really need to do. We made it, we need to make sure that they have normal. Caliber of airway function, um, and that they don't have any sort of mysterious things happening in their larynx, or they don't have tracheal bronchomalacia or asthma, COPD, ILD. The list goes on of like what comorbidities they may have. But these are patients, you know, that they're literally just sitting here with chest pain and everything else is normal. We have to consider: is this a breathing pattern disorder?
0: I think that the psychological bucket is probably where a lot of them get dumped because you've worked them upside down and backwards and everything's coming up normal. They've had a normal cardiology workup and you're, you know, you start thinking, well, maybe you're anxious. And I, I hate to say, you know, we probably stick a lot of them in there because I don't think a lot of us are familiar with um, dysfunctional breathing pattern. And you guys have actually a dysfunctional breathing clinic. Is that right?
1: We do. And I, I run that clinic. I see the patients there. My hope is after I study in the UK, I can start training more of our U.S. providers to start seeing patients with this. Um, you know, I think because we're pulmonary based and we see a patient with only a psychological concern like anxiety, we think, "Well, you need to go do talk therapy," but we don't think about reprogramming the brain to breathe, and and that's sort of the missing piece in all this. And I am hoping research later down the road, kind of helps me move towards the position of saying, well, what marker causes that change? You know, does it, what part of the brain does it exist in? How does it affect the the body? And there's nothing out there to classify it. And I think if there was, we would just be able to fix it, right? So I think we all shy away from this and, and I'm, I'm ready to kind of dive in and see what change can, can we make because we've thought 9 to 12% of the population that exists in this realm and they don't have any treatment right now. So the clinic at National Jewish for Dysfunctional Breathing or Breathing Pattern Disorders, as I like to call it, um, can really help these patients.
0: Yeah. I remember you and I were working on an ILD project and in passing, you mentioned, oh yeah, in our dysfunctional breathing clinic. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? There's a what? (laughs) I'm in Colorado Springs. You're in Denver. You're right down the hill from me. And I don't know that this exists. I have a feeling a lot of people don't know something like this exists. Do you know, are there other clinics across the U.S. or other universities that are doing this?
1: Yeah. there. I think there's possibly one in Texas. Um, The approach to treatment is not standardized. So it's really like we're playing with the art of medicine. And, you know, I bring in my background of uh, massage therapy and um, my yoga training, as well as my pulmonary training to treat these patients. And my approach is very similar to the approach that the UK providers use. And the UK has been treating this for years. And, you know, they truly are the specialists in this and so i'm excited to go and study with them and bring their techniques specifically back to our clinic and really transform the way this is treated across the us um, you know bigger goals for me is to is to take this out to the the local communities and 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 teach providers not just at national jewish but across the us of how do we treat this and so not everyone has to come to National Jewish specifically, but they can seek treatment all over the US. So
0: when should we be thinking of these patients? Like when, when should we say this might be a dysfunctional
1: breathing disorder? Yeah, so if you have ruled out every other possible comorbidity, like you've tested for asthma, you've checked smoking history, they don't have COPD, they don't have interstitial lung disease, they don't have tracheobronchomalacia. Um, maybe you've done every breathing test and scan you can think of, and that includes diaphragmatic function. It's super important to make sure their diaphragms are functioning. Um, so maybe you, you've done supine and upright PFTs. You've done sniff testing. You know, you really think the next step is, okay, let's just get you on, you know, an exercise machine and see whether it's a treadmill or a bike. And, you know, everything looks fine, except that result says, you know, erratic pattern of breathing or sometimes it will say um, dysfunctional breathing and we can talk a little bit more about the terminology and my thoughts around that but once you get that diagnosis you know that you've ruled out everything else it's time to think about okay how do we retrain their breathing pattern so that they're not suffering anymore that's great
0: Do, can you share a little bit about how, when you approach those patients, I'm sure by the time they see you, they're pretty exhausted in seeing, in testing and seeing healthcare providers and thinking that no one can help them. Um, I'm sure when you see those patients, they feel pretty helpless or you're my last hope, you know, kind of situation. Um, How do you approach those patients? How should we be talking to them about if we're going to, you know, let's say in a couple of years, there are these referral centers that we can send to for dysfunctional breathing. You know, how does that transition look like?
1: I think it starts with terminology. Um, you know, classically in the U.S., we call it dysfunctional breathing. And I think that terminology has really negative connotations for the patient. And I've actually talked to my patients about this. Like, what should we call it? And dysfunctional means that I'm dysfunctional. We hear I'm dysfunctional. I have a problem. Um, it's always going to exist. I can't fix it. And then breathlessness, it's, they don't always have breathlessness, right? They, they have chest pain. And they'll say to you, well, I'm, I don't have dysfunctional breathing. I have chest pain. And that chest pain leads to shortness of breath. So when I think about the connotations of dysfunctional breathing, um, and I, I thought about, you know, what do, what do they call it in the UK? And it's breathing pattern disorder. It, it has a positive spin, right? I have a breathing pattern that's abnormal. And it's a disorder, like just like any other disorder. Um, it, it can be treated. It can be fixed. And so first of all, is just saying this can be treated and and setting a positive tone in clinic. Because like you said, these patients are exhausted. They've gone through numerous walk testing, numerous breathing testing. We've exercised their body to the max. And then they're sitting in front of me and you're saying, you know, I, they say to me, you're saying I've done all these things and all I need to do is retrain my breath. And it. It sounds easy, but it's probably the most difficult thing to ask patients to do because we're a pill society, right? Where we like taking pills and, and fixing our problem. But this is a concerted effort for them to get to know their body a little bit more, get to know their breathing a little bit more. And it oftentimes starts at rest. And patients will say, No, I have this problem when my when I'm exercising. And you're telling me I have to I have to do this at rest too. And it it really affects the body. And it's physiological state in all forms. So at rest and with exertion. And so I really, one, set a positive tone in clinic. Two, I tell them this is a stepwise process. Like it starts with paying attention at rest. Like how is your body breathing? And what do you notice? What are the symptoms? And I like to track it by questionnaires. It gives them some like actual questions to look at and reflect on and think about. And then when I see them in follow-up, we do those same questionnaires. And then we just decide, you know, are they ready to exert themselves now? Can, can they do this? And sometimes we go to do that and it's two steps backwards, you know, in order to go forward. And so we hang in this limbo for a while. So you, you really have to be a positive force and, and reinforce patients that they're doing the right thing. It just takes time to assimilate that change in the brain so that it becomes more automatic.
0: So it's like developing a new habit. You're trying to get them to break one and initiate another.
1: Yeah, and one thing I wanna speak to um, is, you know, I had one provider tell me, well, just send them to a yoga class. You know, what I'm doing is not yoga, right? Um, I I have a background in yoga and I think it informs the way I approach um, the breath retraining, but it is not anything that they do in yoga and not all teachers out there, yoga teachers, are trained specifically in, in retraining the breath. You know, there are a subset of teachers out there that do really well with this, but the vast majority don't. And so just be really wary. Do not send your patient to a yoga class because you think that that's going to solve their, dis- their breathing pattern disorder. It's not true. They really need focused care from a provider who understands their physiology as well as their symptoms and also the breath retraining.
0: Could you give us a little brief demonstration of the types of breathing training you give them, at, like at rest, for
1: example? Yeah, so so typically, you know, what I what I do is I first will lay them supine, and I watch their breathing. I just see what their normal pattern of breathing is, and then I do that in seated and standing as well. And usually, they're chest breathers, meaning they breathe with the upper part of their chest as as opposed to their rib cage expanding. And I like to have the analogy of a can, right? Just like a can of beans, where the size of the can represent the rib cage, the bottom of the can represents the diaphragm, and the top of the can represents the clavicles. And I get them to start thinking about their body in a three-dimensional way. And when you begin to tell the patient you're a three-dimensional being that can breathe from all sides, Sometimes that self-corrects in, in a very easy way. They can find their lower rib cage, but sometimes they can't. And so I do hands-on manipulation to actually get them to push my hands away with their lower lower rib cage. And there's a technique at which you're, you're compressing that lower rib cage. They they breathe into it, and I let go, and they they suddenly feel like find this burst of air that goes into their lower rib cage, and it's it's pretty powerful. Um, I've even tried it on some providers in clinic who were skeptical and they're like, oh wow, yeah, I can actually really feel that. Um and those are my initial steps into getting them to find their lower ribs. And for some patients, you know, that's as far as we get and 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 others they're they're ready to go on to more um like actual focused breathing. So we focus on you know the inhale being a certain length of time and the exhale being subjectively longer or even sometimes we count it longer. And the count is different for all patients. I think standard, I start like four counts on an inhale and six on an exhale. And um, the the theory behind that is if you're hyperventilating, right? And you're, you're breathing pretty fast, usually your rate of breathing will say is two inhale, one, two, exhale, one, two. And what happens is your chest is moving so fast to keep up that if you just lengthen the exhale just a bit, you have then a longer pause to bring that inhale in. For patients, it's a bit harder to change the inhale, I find, but they can easily exhale a little bit more air without force. And because everybody's chest cavity is a different size, it it is really personalized medicine. To to decide like what is your breath count and how does that work? But standard, I usually have the exhale a little bit longer, and we see how that works. And I usually have them try it for a month, as well as having biofeedback with their own hands, just feeling that lower ribcage movement. Again, it is it is really like a a fine dance between their ability to understand what biofeedback is and how it works in the body and their effort to do it, as well as their understanding, like, don't don't rush the process.
0: I mean, this definitely is something you need to have a very engaged patient to do, right? This, Like you said, it's not a take a pill and get better, um, do this procedure and get better. Do you feel like your patients at this point, because they've been through everything and they're obviously desperate enough to do something about it, are pretty engaged? Or do you feel like it's a mix of patients that engage and patients that don't?
1: I find that all of my patients are engaged.
0: Yeah, I would imagine by that stage, for those reasons, probably they're pretty engaged. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I joke about how I love rules. I love black and white. And if I knew how gray medicine was, I probably would not have gone into it. Um, and this sounds like it's a pretty gray area. You know, it's still, you know, something that's new and developing. Um, and I'm sure there's some unfair things about this disorder that it probably does not exist in a silo by itself, right? There's probably other things that influence it or can be concomitant.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to note. So we're talking about patients who have breathlessness or atypical symptoms like chest pain and we've rolled out cardiology you know, concerns. And here they are sitting in clinic there's also those subset of patients where they do have comorbidities and have dysfunctional breathing. And I think you really have to be aware of that too. So breathing pattern disorder has been studied really regularly in asthmatic patients. And in the US, that's kind of how we know it is. You know, most asthmatics have a breathing pattern disorder, which is true. Um, it, it, it does exist. And if you think about, um, I, I know most of our pulmonary providers could relate to, to this next reflection, we see that asthmatic patient in clinic and they're like, well, I can't tell if, you know, I'm, I'm having an, an exacerbation or if my um, anxiety is driving the symptoms that I'm feeling, right? I mean, all of this can relate to that. And honestly, what, you know, what we're talking about in breathing pattern disorder is that link between the brain and the body. So what I've found actually in, all, in a lot of my patients too because I see patients who do have comorbidities as well, is that if they do have asthma or if they do have COPD or ILD, those underlying conditions need treatment first. You have to maximize that treatment before you even then begin to retrain their breathing. And I find that that their process is even longer. It's going to be even more strenuous for them to do. Like even if the techniques are the same, if they have this comorbidity, it's a constant, well, is that my asthma exacerbation? Is that my anxiety or is that my breathing pattern disorder? And so um, the exciting thing about that is what I'm also trying to develop in clinic is um, a real-time biofeedback mechanism for um, these patients. Um, In the UK, they've been wearing these vests and they can actually see in real time how their rib cage moves with their breathing. And I want to bring that here because... When you have comorbidities, I think it does take a lot more concerted effort to teach these patients how to retrain their breath.
0: Yeah, like asthma patients and uh, vocal cord dysfunction, right? A lot of times those overlap. And so I know I'll tell my patients, you know, if, if you use your albuterol, you're not feeling better and, you know, if your peak flows are within normal range for you, likely it's then your vocal cord dysfunction and focus on that breathing you know, exercises that speech therapy does and that kind of thing. So this will be an add on, you know, if that doesn't work, then maybe we do this biofeedback. But I mean, that's kind of a great extra tool that I don't think any of us have really considered out in the the non-academic world, you know, for these patients. I think a lot of times we want to push them towards exercise because we assume some deconditioning is there. But again, if, if you send them for exercise testing, we should see that. And if it's not there, then this is definitely something to consider is what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I think what I love um, about this is disorder is it's really multi-layered and multifaceted, right? We start with the patients who have no comorbidities, right? Nothing is wrong with their airways. Nothing is wrong with their tissues in their lungs, yet they have this constellation of symptoms. So we begin to treat breathing pattern disorder. That's one patient population. The next is those with comorbidities. They also have this breathing pattern disorder on top of that. And so we treat the comorbidities, we begin to treat the breathing pattern disorder. But then I have to say, there is a subset of both populations that need also inspiratory muscle training. And now we're opening a whole other can of worms, right? Because what is inspiratory muscle training? And that's actually getting the muscles of inspiration, the muscles we use to breathe in, stronger. And some of those patients do need that. Um, especially after they've done the breath retraining. And I notice, you know, their diaphragmatic function is intact. This falls into that world of deconditioning. Like maybe they'd need to build their muscles, kind of like lifting weights for a bicep curl. Instead, they're doing inspiratory muscle training with these devices that help strengthen the muscles for inspiration. Um, I have applied for a grant and I'm crossing my fingers that I I get the grant because I, think there are part of the population that I'm also already treating that need this, but the roadblock is is the cost of the inspiratory muscle de- training device. But if I can get patients this device through the grant and start studying this, I think we'll, you know, have more of a foundation to say as a culture, look, we need this device. Kind of similar to when the aerobica came into fashion, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, immediately accepted by the community, and now we can prescribe it. I think mm-hmm. that inspiratory muscle training devices are going to be similar, but there needs to be research on it.
0: Right. Absolutely. I, I have a feeling a lot of information is probably going to be coming out in the next uh, year or so, probably a poster at least and a paper. Uh, definitely share that with us so we can share it with everybody else. I do want to go back a little bit because uh, the chest pain component, do, uh, do the majority of these patients have a chest pain complaint or... Could you give it a percentage? Because I know not probably all of them have chest pain.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really small percentage. Actually, what I find is that the patients um, who typically have anxiety, and I don't mean anxiety that's been fully diagnosed. You know, we have some high functioning people with anxiety that is pretty subclinical, and you know they'll say, "I'm stressed and I feel chest pain." It's it's more of of those patients that will express chest pain um, at least I find in my clinic and maybe that's generalizing, but, um, I'd say yet to be determined, but that's what I've been seeing.
0: Okay. But the majority is, I just can't tolerate activity. I'm breathless and the things that I do. And some of them even breathless at rest.
1: Yeah. They'll say, usually they won't characterize themselves as breathless at rest, but they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I'm short of breath when I exercise or I, uh, you know, some patients who say, I just can't keep up with my friends when I'm walking a normal pace. Um, I feel like I'm breathing really heavy. And when you inquire a little bit further about their breathing at rest, they'll say I'm sighing, you know, during the day or I'm yawning more or I feel like I have a hiccup in my breath where I have to take an extra breath in order to feel better or I consciously have to take a deeper breath during the day.
0: That's awesome. I mean, th- th- these are definitely complaints we hear from our patients all the time. And it's very frustrating on our end when you have turned them upside down and backwards with all sorts of testing and you don't know what it is. So it's very exciting to hear that there's something on the horizon that you're already tackling and, you know, hopefully will trickle down to all of us uh, to offer these patients. So I encourage everybody listening, maybe look to your university research centers to see if maybe there's a dysfunctional uh, breathing uh, clinic, you know, in your area for those patients. Corey, is there anything else you want to add or anything else you think is important for people to know or think about around this disorder?
1: I think just have an open mind and then know that breathing pattern disorders exist and there's treatment for it. And if you find a treatment center, please reach out and let me know. I'd, I'd love to be in communication with them and, and establish, you, you know, a partnership. Because we're all in this together.
0: This is going to be a whole new subspecialty. I just have a feeling.
1: I think so too.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot. I think everybody is and, and have given us hope that there is there is something maybe we can do for these patients. Um, if you missed episode one, it's on our podcast channel. Please take a look at that. It dives a little deeper into exercise testing and what do these results mean and which patients should we be looking at again for these patients who are breathless um, for maybe idiopathic causes at that time or or reasons. And please subscribe and follow our podcast. That's the best way to support APAP. And we'll talk to you guys later.
1: Thanks, Corinne.